Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for this Monday, the 21st day of November. I'm Julie Hersey. Petersburg Borough Assembly will be meeting this evening to hear about the borough's most important upcoming projects. That will be 6 o'clock tonight in Assembly Chambers. Borough Manager Steve Giesbrecht will provide a report on large upcoming projects. He plans to give updates on an extensive list. Those include parks and recreation projects, updates on harbor and marine facilities, utility repairs, and public works. Giesbrecht will also give his usual projects report. The Petersburg Borough is requesting letters of interest from people who wish to serve on the Petersburg Economic Development Council. The council is a nonprofit that formed just over 20 years ago to guide economic development in the borough. Positions are held for three years. The assembly will consider a new resolution approving purchase of a Caterpillar generator for under $200,000 that will be bought from a company in Juneau. Mayor Mark Jensen is scheduled to appoint two Petersburg residents to represent the community on the Southeast Alaska Power Agency Board, or SEPA. SEPA is the Ketchikan-based owner of transmission lines and two hydroelectric projects that help power Petersburg. The two current SEPA board members, Assemblymember Bob Lynn and Utility Director Carl Hagerman, have submitted letters of interest to serve another term. Alaska Airlines has drafted a letter of support to continue to provide essential air service to Petersburg and other rural communities in Southeast. The Assembly plans to discuss supporting the letter. Again, Borough Assembly meets at 6 o'clock tonight for its regular meeting in Assembly Chambers. KFSK will broadcast the meeting live. Also, we'll post a recording on our website at kfsk.org. And stay tuned for Borough Business. It's a call-in program with Assembly members at 1230 right after Midday Magazine. And if you'd like to call in questions or comments, the phone number is 907-772-3808. Petersburg High School has seen an uptick in e-cigarette use, also known as vaping. The school is not alone in this issue. Rates of teen vaping in Alaska are on par with the lower 48. Rachel Cassandra has this report. School administrators in Petersburg say that more kids are vaping this year than in years past. Middleland High School principal Ambler Moss said at a school board meeting there was at least one group of kids vaping in school. Over four students were vaping in the bathroom. Um, But miraculously, because we found no instrument, we just knew it had taken place, we knew these four were there. The school hasn't actually caught many kids vaping, but students have said vaping is going on. Charlotte Martin is 17 and the student rep for the school board. She says vaping isn't widespread, but some kids are vaping during school, probably to seem cool. It's a little bit like you're trying to look cool. It's maybe something that someone that's a little younger would do to try to fit in with some of the older kids. I think most people would say it's not very cool. It's kind of cringy. (laughs) Part of the problem is that it's easy for parents and teachers to miss the signs of vaping entirely. Compared to cigarettes, vaping may have little smell or it may smell like flavorings. Kids might know, but not always the adults. Here's Superintendent Erica Clute-Painter. I think a lot of kids know what things smell like, and then the adults are saying, well, it smells like strawberries, and it's like, well, but that's what it is. Older vaping devices produced big clouds, but newer ones are more subtle. And people who don't vape might also have trouble recognizing the devices. They can look like flash drives, pens or highlighters, or even makeup. Every year, Petersburg High School students fill out the Alaska Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is anonymous. 
According to that survey, vaping rates for local teens are on par with the Southeast region and the state. Erin Michael is the public health nurse for Petersburg and Wrangell. Um, Petersburg looks at uh, an average about 20.7% have in the last 30 days used electronic vaping products when the survey was done. And the state is at 21.6. So very similar numbers there. That means about one in five high schoolers have vaped in the last month and almost 45% have tried it. Nicotine is addictive for anyone, but teens are at greater risk. Charlie S. is a wellness coordinator for the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Rural CAP. Because the um, adolescent brain hasn't developed the prefrontal cortex for reasoning quite yet, it's very um, susceptible to addiction. They still have quite a bit to learn in their lives, and nicotine really interrupts that process. That's Christy Knight. She's a program manager for the Alaska Tobacco Prevention and Control Program. She says high amounts of nicotine impairs developing brains. It impairs their ability to pay attention. Uh, It it impairs their impulse control uh, and and really just is, is impactful to their ability to learn in a negative way. Knight says that because vaping is relatively new, we still don't know the long-term health effects, but we do know some of the ingredients people vape. They may contain ultra-fine particles, um, and those can be inhaled deep into the lung. A flavorant such as diacetyl, which is a chemical linked to serious lung disease. Uh, volatile organic compounds such as benzene, which is found in car exhaust. And heavy metals such as nickel, tin, and lead. S. says that the word vape is actually a misnomer. When people use e-cigarettes, they're not inhaling water vapor, but aerosolized chemicals. If you want a better visual, imagine putting a you know, can of hairspray up to your mouth and giving it a shot like whipped cream. According to experts, the most concerning part of young people vaping is that it could mean they're dealing with even bigger issues. Samuel Steinbrugge, a social worker and supervisor at Search's Behavioral Clinic in Petersburg, tells me what he worries about when a kid is vaping. The very first thing that I think about is what else is going on for that kid um, because that they're, they're looking for, for something to, to help themselves feel better. And he says we need to view habits like these in the context of cultural and intergenerational trauma. Structural violence and oppression that lends itself think, to things like alcoholism and then domestic violence, divorce, um, substance use. Teens may also turn to vaping because of stressors around COVID. Steinbrugge says teens go through a developmental phase called individuation, where peer relationships become especially important. COVID lockdowns weakened those peer relationships. Not having those peer interactions has lent itself to increased rates of depression, increased rates of anxiety. These are problems that Alaska and the rest of the U.S. is also facing. The upside of that is there are regional, statewide, and national programs to help with this very problem. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. This story is the first of a two-part series on vaping. The next piece will air tomorrow, and it will focus on what we can do when teens are vaping in Petersburg and beyond. Major river systems in southeast Alaska start across the U.S.-Canada border, and natural resource development in the transboundary watersheds can have serious effects hundreds of miles away. As Sage Smiley reports, more than a dozen southeast Alaska tribal governments and councils are asking the Canadian government to recognize their sovereignty and give them a seat at the decision-making table when natural resource development could impact the communities downstream. 
The ever-shifting tidal flats of the Stikeen River Delta are peppered with weathered tree trunks, the root systems sticking up like another small forest. For centuries, the Stachin, the bitter water, and the surrounding land was the territory of chief sheikhs. The tidal passed through generations of leaders of the Stikeen Tlingit people. The 1971 Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act extinguished what it called aboriginal title to the land, water, hunting, and fishing rights. I call it the failed experiment. Rob Sanderson is the chair of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission, or SEITC, a consortium of 15 Southeast tribal governments which aims to protect rivers that sustain communities and culture in Southeast. He's standing on the back deck of a jet boat, idling just past the Stikine Delta. Now we're all at the table like this. Although Southeast Alaska's Tlingit, Haida, and Simpson people are part of the same indigenous groups that exist just a few miles upriver in Canada, Alaska Native people aren't recognized as sovereign nations by Canada's government. The jet boat is carrying a cross-border group of environmental advocates and tribal leaders upriver. Today's focus is the Stikine, the fastest-flowing navigable river in North America. It was named one of the 10 most endangered rivers in America by nonprofit environmental organization American Rivers in 2019 because of the potential impacts from mine development. Everything we protect is pretty, um, pretty amazing to, to get, you know, like up with what we're up against. Haida leader Guja, who goes by his mononymous Khadkil name, also stands on the back deck. But yet, for our own people at the village level, it's not a gain. It's just really it's just preventing a loss. So we're not gaining anything. You know, people look and see that the trees over there are still there or they're in it. But that's how it's been forever. So we didn't gain anything by it. The commission is seeking what's called the right of consent for Southeast tribes in the permitting process for a dozen operating and proposed mines in British Columbia. It's a higher status than they're currently afforded by the B.C. government and would allow Southeast Alaska Native people the same rights as First Nations when it comes to free, prior, and informed consent about the impacts of proposed mines. Kirby Muldo, whose Gihsan name is Hapalaksa, works with Skeena Wild, a Canadian conservation trust. As we, as we say about salmon, you know, they know no borders. Standing on a sandy riverbank, Trixie Bennett says Tlingit creation stories center on the waterways of modern-day British Columbia and southeast Alaska. Bennett says her people have held the river in high esteem for generations, but they didn't do it alone. This trip today is just an, another step towards um, reuniting with our cousins up the river. Um, I'm a Tlingit Taltan. And up there are the Taltan Clickets. Another few miles upriver and through a winding slough, pale blue icebergs start to dot the water. It's an opportunity to take some photos. Iceberg right, oh, right behind here, us right now. Here, right here. All right, got you guys. <laughs> Lean in a little bit. In front of Shakes Glacier, named for the seven Tlingit chiefs of Wrangell who bore the name Chief Shakes, group members share songs and stories. Like glaciers throughout the world, this one is spectacular and a visible reminder of the changing climate. The face of the glacier has retreated miles down the lake in the last few decades. The mood is exuberant and determined. For some on the trip, it's their first time up the Stikine. For others, it's a part of home. Aksin Esther Reese is the tribal administrator for Wrangell's tribal government, the Wrangell Cooperative Association. When I'm on the river, I can feel our ancestors with us, 
and I imagine them paddling down these rivers and it is so extremely important for us to protect the rivers, to have co-management with our brothers and sisters in Canada and yeah, this, this, we have been here since time immemorial and we've always taken care of the land and will continue to do so. For now, the Commission's focus is on getting Southeast Tribes participating First Nation status in the SK Creek Revitalization Project, the proposed reopening of a metals mine in the Eunuch watershed. The draft environmental assessment for the project will come within the next year or two, and at that point, it will be more clear whether BC will allow Southeast Tribes a seat at the table. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. Republican incumbent U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski is now ahead of GOP challenger Kelly Chewbacca by 1,658 votes in updated election results on Friday. That leaves her almost certain to win re-election. Just first place votes have been counted so far. The U.S. Senate race will ultimately be decided on Wednesday, and that's when all races where no candidate has more than half the vote will head to rank choice tabulation. Murkowski's share of the vote is expected to grow once Democrat Pat Chesbro, who finished third, is eliminated during the ranked choice process. And in the governor's race, Republican incumbent Mike Dunleavy now has 50.3 percent of the vote. Analysts say even if he falls below 50 percent and the race heads to ranked choice tabulation, they expect the governor will secure a second term. And in the House race, the U.S. House race, incumbent Congresswoman Mary Peltola still holds a strong lead. The Democrat has 49% of the vote to Republican Sarah Palin's 26% and Republican Nick Begich's 23%. The next vote update is expected on Wednesday. The ranked choice tabulation is scheduled for 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, and the Division of Elections will announce the results at that time. KFSK will air the announcement live also that night, Alaska News Nightly will be airing a special one-hour program to discuss the results and rank choice voting. And that'll be at 6 o'clock on Wednesday, November 23rd. That wraps up the news portion of Midday Magazine for this Monday.